On today's episode, we cover hosting an event with fans post-COVID, and we dive deep on internal and external communication practices. From Engagement, I'm David Malay, and this is Flip the Switch. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer and employee experience to tease out core principles and apply those insights to the world of sports and entertainment. Our guest today is Drew Bedard, the Vice President of Marketing at Bristol Motor Speedway and Kentucky Speedway. Drew and I first met when I was at Disney Institute, and he was at Bristol. At the time, Drew and I were exploring the opportunity for us to work together in some capacity. And so I flew up to Bristol for their biggest race weekend of the year. During my visit to Bristol, I learned two important things relevant to this conversation. Number one, Drew is a massive lifelong learner. When I walked into his office that day, I remember it being full of books, pinned up quotes, Bristol's values, all sorts of things. Today, Drew has his own podcast called Marketing That Works, where he shares best practices that he's learning and experimenting with every day. Throughout the conversation with Drew, this becomes clear. And his mindset around learning and experimentation, that's a mindset leaders in sport can emulate. As our consumers' behaviors and preferences change, we've got to adapt our own services, products, and distribution to keep up. Thing number two that I learned that is important to this conversation, Bristol Motor Speedway is one of the biggest venues I've ever been to. Normally, when I visit a football stadium to assess their operation about how they might get better, I'm getting in around 30,000 steps. That day at Bristol, I had to have gotten in around 50,000. For those of you unfamiliar, Bristol Motor Speedway holds up to 162,000 people. And it holds the record for the largest college football game ever when Virginia Tech played Tennessee in 2016, the battle at Bristol. It's important that you know the full capacity of the venue. Otherwise, your jaw might have dropped when I tell you that they had almost 30,000 fans in their venue on July 15th, less than a month ago, when they hosted the NASCAR All-Star Race. As sports and entertainment venues across the U.S. prepare to open, I thought it would be good for you all to hear from Drew, who's actually been there and done it. I think that qualifies him as the closest thing to an expert as we've got right now in the world as it relates to operating events with fans post-COVID. In the conversation today, we're going to talk about the lessons that he learned, what he and his team might have done differently. We'll cover what made them successful as they hosted their event, and we'll dive in on specific tools and tactics that they used from project management software to communication methods that they used with fans. Enough suspense. Let's wrap up this intro and bring in Drew Bedard. Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Uh, so I think we, we have to start here, right? You guys just held an event, probably I think is the biggest event post-pandemic in any sport that has, been, that has happened so far in terms of attendance. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what occurred, what went down in case people listening had not heard that you guys hosted an event. Yes. So, um, and and the event you're referring to is the July 15th NASCAR all-star race at Bristol motor speedway. Um, so 
Yeah. And I mean, a little bit more about my history and or where I am today. I'm VP of marketing at both Bristol and Kentucky. So I, I guess more of like a Speedway Motorsports role um, as there's kind of a few marketing leads across the company. But so the NASCAR All-Star Race is a great story. And it's um, it was a both an awesome and very hectic time period, but just such a cool experience to go through. So what happens is you get about a month out. So we're like mid June and, you know, the discussions are obviously ramping up at that point of who can host an event with fans and who can, um, and our CEO and, and, and my boss, Jerry at Bristol have spoken to all of this, that there wasn't any, I would say one factor that, that dealt with, that really was the deciding factor on moving the NASCAR all-star race from Charlotte motor speedway to Bristol motor speedway. But, there was um, our governor, Governor Lee, was open to the idea of having fans at the track. And our local government was open to it as well, obviously, if it was done very, very safely. Um, so then, you know, we, we got approval to have up to 30,000 fans um, at Bristol Motor Speedway. Um, so there was, there was probably a five to seven day period behind the scenes where we were hearing like, it might happen. It might not happen. It might happen. It might not happen, but we were all getting, yeah, we were all getting prepared as if it was so on the Bristol side. And of course our, our teammates at Charlotte could not have been better could not have been more graceful about the entire thing. And, you know, you and I spoke about this a little bit before we started recording, but there is truly this team all in mentality at Speedway Motorsports. So everybody from Sonoma to Bristol to Atlanta to New Hampshire, all the way, all our eight tracks, it is an all in mentality. So if something shifts or something changes, um, everybody's all in. So everybody's in to help. So then let's take you to, yeah, about a month out from the event. It's like a Friday. Um, we hear from Jerry, it might be happening, get ready. But then at like six o'clock that Friday night, it was, I think it's staying in Charlotte. Then wake up 10 a.m. the next morning on a Saturday and we, we're getting texts that say, it's on, we're doing it. Um, so then it's, and this is again, a testament to the group and to the company that I, that I get to work for, is that by within two hours, there's a massive phone call, massive Zoom call with everybody from ticket operations to marketing to PR to everybody of, okay, you know, this announcement will come out Monday. How do we do that effectively? How do we launch effectively? What are our ticket pricing levels going to be? You know, how are we, you know, everything. And, and we already launch into the safety plan and the COVID protocols and everything. So that's on a Saturday. So Saturday calls, Sunday calls, Monday evening. Um, if I remember correctly, it was launched on Race Hub that Monday evening on Fox because, of course, it's a big tentpole Fox event. It's an FS1 event. Um, it's really, you know, it's really a big, it's a big TV play. Whereas, you know, most of the NASCAR events are these, you know, large right. festival type four or five day events, live events. Um, it was probably an even bigger TV play now at this point because there's no other, there was no other sports on. Right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, and and I won't I won't belabor it too much, but that kind of started the process of a month long ramp up of, you know, heavy work, heavy collaboration with everybody within the company to make it happen. And, um, but with a few 
very key elements to it. First, we had to do the ticket operations because we were going to digital ticketing for the first time. Mm-hmm. So we were going from paper tickets and all that stuff to digital ticketing. The other big thing was exchanges. So if people wanted to come from Charlotte or from one of our other Speedway Motorsports facilities that had to have a race like we did at Bristol, May 31st and June 1st, with no fans, there was the ability to exchange your tickets to go to the all-star race at Bristol. So again, a lot of back end, a lot of ticket operations um, that had to be ramped up and ramped up quickly. Again, I've already talked about it, but a lot of safety had to be ramped up quickly from cleaning the facility. What's the cleaning plan? What's the signage plan? What's the education plan, the fan information plan. So it was an amazing experience um, to get ramped up for it. And um, and again, it was just an all-in effort to get there. And again, I, I, I won't take it day by day from here on out, but it's, you know, every day just sort of chipping away at trying to make sure fans were comfortable with the event, make sure that we operated it correctly um, and safely, uh, make sure that we had a great tune in audience. And then at the end of the day, you know, Speedway Motorsports and, and Marcus Smith, our CEO, you know, it's about family and fun and we want to have fun live events. So then it's about how do we make the live experience great? And of course, NASCAR was a huge part of that by doing, you know, the underglow lights, you know, kind of a different pre-race element. And then we, we activated one big idea, and this is probably a, a good plug for them, but Q Audio. Q Audio is the group that we worked with on the in-stadium light show right before. So we did, you know, I, I of, that. Q Audio, C-U-E Audio. They're out of Nashville. Um We'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah. And we've worked with them. We were able to integrate their technology directly into the Bristol Motor Speedway mobile app, which again was going to be kind of a fan hub because your digital tickets kind of come from there. And think of digital tickets as an airline ticket at this point. You go in there, you download it to your Apple wallet or your Google yeah. wallet or whatever. Um, but it became that you know our adoption grew. So we knew that the app was going to be definitely a fan hub so that we we had worked with Q last year on the August race and had some fun with that but it was st- some small adoption and we had a we had a good light show a couple of times and, but we, and so yeah, yeah what what exactly is Q audio and and how did, and how you use them yeah so Q audio is um i think they do three main things trivia light shows and like a selfie cam and it's all okay. driven by an audio cue in the audio stadium system so if you open up your app and you're you're able to receive the audio cue, it will then trigger your phone to do something. You've seen this at the Superdome in the uh, Superdome in New Orleans. Um, I know, you know, famously for this area that I live in East Tennessee. So at the Tennessee basketball games, they've done a lot of that where they drop the lights. You do a light show that's all integrated to a. a a wave file, some sort of audio file that's playing. So like for the all-star race, and I know I'm probably going too deep into mm-mm, mm-mm. what we did that night, but keep, keep, keep going. Yeah. But, but we wanted to make it fun. So we knew we had to integrate something really cool into pre-race other than what was already being done. Cause really pre-race, which I loved because I, part of my gig is also Colossus TV. So, which is our big jumbotron at Bristol. So that's, that's underneath the marketing department was that pre-race festivities was really all an FS1 show. So we were able to take it live basically right to the screen, which is wonderful for us in the screen ops world. 
Um, but then that element in particular was one that we led and we pushed off from our side. So as the, the cars fired at, you know, whatever that time was about nine o'clock, they fire on pit road right after pre-race ceremonies and the underglow underglow goes on. We hit, um, light them up or, you know, it's got a different title, but the fallout boy song. So we hit light them up and that was the audio trigger to light up the phones and it really went off and like NASCAR was really psyched about it. And and that was, so that's an individual story from a night of really fun activities that we were able to execute at the stadium for the people that were there live. Because again, at the end of the day, we want them to walk away with these peak moments of yes, we wanted the sentiment when people exited the all-star race to say, Speedway Motorsports did a great job of transitioning from Charlotte to Bristol. They executed a very safe event mm-hmm. and we had fun. And so if we accomplished those things, and of course, and still ha- and it had a great um, tune-in audience. It was a Wednesday night, so that's a little bit tougher from the TV perspective. But um, if we did those things, then we executed a successful event. So it was really cool. It was really crazy. Um, but we were Jerry again, Jerry Caldwell, my boss at Bristol, he was like an ear to ear smile from the time that we got it to the time that we executed it, because this is like something you wish for, you hope for, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but it kind of falls into your lap four or five weeks out. And, you know, then the work begins and you got to execute well, but it was also so, so humbling and such an honor to like, that NASCAR and our CEO would say, you know who can host this right? Bristol can host it. They'll do it right. They'll have fun with it. And they'll do it safely and they'll do it effectively like we want to do at Speedway Motorsports. So um, it was a great experience and a lot of fun. And, you know, who's who knows? So uh, this may have backfired on me because my thought process for kicking this off was to let you just let you give the full story, your version of it. And then I would take notes and go in and, and dissect the different pieces. <laughs> I have like 10 bullet points at least that I want to go back on. Let's do uh, it. Whereas from here on out, I'm just going to interrupt you. Uh, Perfect. All right. Let, let's start with the way you guys worked together um, to pull all this off as, as Speedway Motorsports as a whole, right? Uh, normally, the way you guys are structured, you have different tracks and you kind of operate autonomously. Um, with some, with some shared resources, but it's certainly not all hands on deck to prepare each race. Right. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you guys shifted because of this and some of the tools and processes and physically, like realistically, logistically, how did you work together? Yeah. Great question. Um, I can say that spring, you know, after COVID kind of shut everything down, um, you know, of course, our company, like a lot of companies, had to make some hard choices as far as overhead was concerned. So there was there was some pullback in um, in headcount, um, which was unfortunate because we had re- we have great we had great people and have great people across the board. But with that came the necessary move to a more all in environment. So I would say pre twenty twenty, yes, you'd be correct in saying that we were kind of running. In a definitely a shared um, environment, and we worked. Uh, for instance, every November or December, the marketing and ticketing folks would do a large summit 
in we've done it in Dallas for the last couple all of different years. tracks. Yeah, all different tracks. So we were already collaborating very well. We knew our sister tracks very well or getting to know them much better over the last two or three years. And of course, that's a testament to Mike Birch and, and Marcus Smith who wanted that more collaborative environment. But then you get to March, April of this year, and we became lean, very, very, very lean, very quickly. And so it was, it was so important that we took that transition to an all-in approach. And of course, this is the, and probably will go down in history as like the big shift to Zoom and, and these types of collaborative environments, video calls and different things like that. But that's when, you know, weekly, daily calls with all the different sister tracks. And I can say personally, with um, I'm collaborating with with the other marketing leads, um, which everybody, me and two other colleagues have two tracks. So we're collaborating across two tracks um, or we're we're managing two tracks apiece. And then there's a couple other marketing leads. So that became instantaneous that we were on calls all the time. Um, and we moved to that sort of environment. Um, but it just became so important to share information. And then so from a tools perspective, of course, Zoom and conference calls and just being together and talking more often. And then I would, I would say that one tool in particular, um, and we ramped it up very quickly because creative is an element to this whole thing from a marketing and PR and communications perspective that you have to have great creative it has to be clear. It has to be well done. And and so we have a lot of really talented creative folks at the company as well, but we needed to get everybody into one system. So we all migrated to Basecamp um, and you can put that in the show notes too, but I know a lot of people, you know, probably use Trello or Asana or something like that, for, but from a tools perspective, and this was kind of um, uh, Jeff Ulrich, who's my boss from the corporate perspective, we were looking at different project management software and we had already used Basecamp at Bristol for about three years because really? our creative folks had said years ago, like, because we were managing creative projects from across the business, not just marketing and communications. It was from events and ticketing and all these different things. So we had seen that a project management system would be um, necessary two or three years ago. So we were already in there. Basecamp's a great system. I was able to help with training with other facilities. And so I said, let's just get everybody in there. And it has been a godsend. I mean, from a collaboration perspective and working across tracks and having some of our senior creative people, our senior marketing people, our senior communications people, being able to see things quickly look at something and say, is this communicating effectively? And I'm I'm not just talking about some ad campaign. I'm talking about everything all the way down to fan communication and how we lay out an education system for fans and how that gets put into creative and how signage is done at the tracks. Everybody's collaborating now and it's, um, it's tremendous and it's been really effective for us um, as we've moved into this new world. It's, surpri- it's surprising to me that there are still, um, I would say, let's call it bigger, 100-person-plus sports and entertainment operations that don't use any kind of project management software. Like, we, we use Trello, and there's six of us, right? But we're putting everything on there. There's three of us working on redoing the website. Like, I got to know who's working on what. And if, right. I have a, if we have to have a meeting every time, I want to see how, if somebody's working on something, my day is going to be filled with meetings. And so like, I think that's one of the challenge too, is like 
if you're looking at something like this and you're going through and you're debating, should I get some type of project management software like a Trello, like a Basecamp, like an Asana or Monday.com, whatever it is. Right. Um, If you're looking at those things and you're saying, oh, it's going to take, it's so much time to learn that new thing. You're going to save so much time and just doing the, eliminating the update meetings. That's what it's all about. And email. Email, email. as much as we all love email, it can be the devil sometimes because, you know, you look at that, like you're talking about with Trello. We use Trello as well supplementally um, when we were launching uh, an updated website for Bristol. And we've been doing that across the different tracks. We use Trello for exactly that purpose, which was there are multiple pieces to the puzzle, multiple assignments within that. And then we we broke them up and said, okay, I'll update the corporate sales pages and you update the fan information hub and you do this. And it was great. And yes, I can encourage senior leaders of companies and sports companies and marketers enough to use project management. It is phenomenal. And, and it's you've just got to get over the old way of doing things. And you've got to say, what's best for the company? What's best for my colleagues, my direct reports? How do I make this more efficient? How do I make their lives better? And then, you know, yes, just by way of how it goes, it makes your life easier too. So, um, but yeah, project management is essential. It's, uh, it's one of those things that is probably, I mean, it's core to really employee experience, right? I think a a lot of leaders, uh, at least traditional leaders might think of employee experience and, oh, it's how am I recognizing people or am I taking them out to lunch? And it's like, for the most part today, you've got knowledge, solid knowledge workers that want to come to work every day and do a good job. And when you ask them what recognition is part or, or what good employee experience is, part of it is just making their job easier. And right. so if you can introduce a project management platform that makes their job easier, that removes the hassles in their day-to-day work, you just really did a great job on employee experience, even if you don't technically think about it like that. That's what, that's what a lot of our work is, honestly, with clients. Um, but yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's it's very important you make that point. And I know I know you've got other questions, but to quickly add on to that point is to listen to your employees and your colleagues and listen, really listen. What is the pain point that they're feeling? And of course, you'll be able to identify whether that pain point is somehow related to I don't want to do this or laziness or if it's really, and I, I'm I'm surrounded by amazing people, and when they say something, I listen because usually they are trying to make something better. And and I and again, two or three years ago, it came up that hey, if we had a project management software system, we could do better work faster, more efficiently, more collaboratively. And I was like, I'm all in. You know, yeah. you you got to break your own you know, theories about things. And you got to say, I got to listen to the people around me. And if I put the right tools in place, then they can thrive too. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's not that much different than what you would do from a fan experience perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Listen for the pain points. And then as a leader, use your your background, your expertise to try to come up with a solution that makes sense, right? Um, I love it. All right. So let's let's go back to to, uh, the all-star event that you guys just put on and all the different things within that. Um, So you mentioned you guys had not, uh, done digital ticketing before this, right? And now you shifted to complete digital ticketing. Was that was that the shift? One hundred percent. How much time had you been working on it prior to the month ahead of time notice that you got? 
I'm, yeah. I'm guessing I'm guessing you had done a ton of groundwork and you were already going to go digital tickets. Would I well, be wrong in that assumption? A, a ton of groundwork is okay. There were definitely people within Speedway Motorsports that had been doing the heavy lifting when it came to groundwork, okay. and there the rest of us were sort of still operating under this. We'll probably get there at some point, but we don't necessarily need to freak out about it to all of a sudden. And Jeff, Jeff Ulrich, again, who's my boss from, from the Speedway Motorsports perspective, he was his leadership was phenomenal because he just said, stop everything you're doing. We have to figure out digital ticketing. And I mean, right now, like we have to figure it out within the next two weeks. And so he had really smart people from across the company figure out the process, the back end, the Ticketmaster elements, all of those different things. So yeah, we went from your normal run of the mill, we're shipping tickets, PDF tickets. PDF tickets was the first step in ratcheting back the paper ticket. Like we were going to eliminate PDF tickets and go to what would have looked like probably 75% paper tickets that you get shipped in the mail and 25% digital tickets for those people who are your, your, your normal early adopters to technology, right. where it was 100% overnight. We have to go to digital contactless tickets. Um, and the all-star race, Texas was going to be the first one because, of course, Texas was the following week after the all-star race. Um, and then uh, New Hampshire is this upcoming weekend. But we were thrust into that immediately from a Bristol Motor Speedway digital ticketing. But really, again, it was a Speedway Motorsports thing because we knew whatever process we put in place was going to have to then be replicated across each track for all of the subsequent events because we're going to have four uh, playoff events as well. Wow. Uh, so, so internally, though, I can't imagine there was a ton of pushback because it was coming from the leadership. Hey, we're moving this. So I, internally, I imagine... Everybody was on board where typically oh, this decision might have been questioned. Yeah, it was jump in. Let's go. Yep. So the, the second question would be, uh, I look at NASCAR's uh, audience and their their fan base, and it tends to be, maybe it's a little bit older. Uh, it, I, I'm not thinking about them as the same audience that's in San Francisco going to a 49ers game at their smart stadium, right? Sure. So, so what pushback did you guys have from fans, if any, and how did you deal with that? Well, I would say it was more anticipated pushback instead of waiting for pushback. It was, we are going to get pushback. So how are we prepared for that when it comes? So there was a very elaborate email automation sequence and app sequence behind the scenes to notify people, your tickets are now ready and assigned and they are in the app. We had, I mean, David, seriously, go go to BristolMotorSpeedway.com or go to Texas or New Hampshire or whatever. You're going to find a very elaborate mobile ticketing section under the events um, or under the tickets section. And we filmed videos within a week. We we did these massive tutorials. We, But, you know, actually, the great part of it was with a partner like Ticketmaster, they were way out ahead of this. So they had a lot of the materials already. We just had to speedway motorsportsify them, whatever. We just had to make them under our brands. Um, so, okay, here's another great case study for collaboration. Atlanta Motor Speedway already had their event. Um, or they were they got their event postponed, but they were going to have their makeup event, but it was going to continue without fans. 
But our team at Atlanta Motor Speedway raised their hands when all of their sister tracks were saying, we're going to have events coming up. We're going to have and not only events, but we're going to have events with fans at the All-Star Race, then Texas, then New Hampshire. The team in Atlanta raised their hands and said, we'll do it. We'll take on the project. We'll do all the scripting. We'll do the videos. We'll film them down here. And they did a phenomenal wow. job. Not only they did all the t- digital ticketing videos. So like from a premium perspective, a suite perspective, a grandstand perspective, a ticket exchange perspective. So if you needed to forward your tickets to other people. All of those videos were done within 10 days of us launching this initiative. So they took all of that on. Then they took on the safety videos. So all of, okay, how are we going to get people into the facility safely? How is this going to work? They filmed it all. They filmed live action stuff in Atlanta with extras and all this different stuff rapidly. And it was so, it was, I I give them all the credit in the world because they were the ones who stepped up and said, we'll do it. Because we're we're a little bit down when it comes to, you know, we don't have the workload that maybe a Bristol or Texas or New Hampshire has right now. So we'll step up and do this. And of course, we'll return the favor when maybe we've got some downtime and they're ramping up for their spring event. Um, so I can't say enough That's about incredible. our friends in Atlanta who just jumped in and helped. Um, all right. So I, I've got to ask this question because I think a lot of we have a lot of listeners that are in college athletics that are on this. Um, and as I think about the fall sports coming up, right. But college football is right around the corner. Um, most of the, not most of the work, but a, a lot of the work around returning to operations and having fans back in the venue is being led by operations teams, but marketing is probably more critical or as critical as all of the work that they're doing, because you got to tell people about it. You got to tell the fans, here's the new expectations from you. Here's what we're doing about it to instill confidence. So talk a little bit about y'all's overarching COVID get back in the venue prep plan from a marketing perspective. How did you communicate that out? You mentioned an email automation that you guys had. Mm -hmm. Um, If you could go through the different ways that you guys did that, how often, feel free to get into the nitty gritty here, because this is where I think a lot of people are planning that this is where they're at. Yeah. Well, first, I mean, I think it has to be communicated and it doesn't have to be a specific number, but you have to say, okay, how, what's the capacity? How many people are going to be in the stadium? Then how are we going to socially distance those folks to make sure that everybody is safe? That, those were, yeah, those were two, the baseline of the, stuff right now. Right, yeah. two of the early keys. And I want to, I want to say one thing from a process perspective was our PR and communications team had a heavy role in developing how we were educating not only fans, but the media on what we were doing Um, from a cleaning perspective, hygiene, bathrooms, um, whatever, masks, temperature checks, anything that we were doing, our PR and communications team, which is led at Bristol by Becky Cox, did a phenomenal job of really like overdoing the education factor. Like we're going to tell you everything that we're doing. We're going to be very transparent with everything that we're doing so that you can see it. And, you know, and again, that was for our community as well. So let's take like Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. You know, I know they want an SEC wants to have football, but I think that part of what the effective rollout was for us was again to say, okay, we are going to go ahead and pre-scale down our facility, but we're going to do that because that is the that's the right thing to do. It's the safe thing to do. Okay, so now we have about X that we are prepared for. 
Then the ticketing operations group jumps in and says, we are going to socially distance you effectively. So we are going to spread you out all over the venue. Then we're going to put in all of these health and safety checks along the way to make sure. And then, of course, all the other things like clear bags, which, you know, one of the big rubs was coolers versus clear bags because coolers are still allowed. Because you guys, yeah, that's right. Right. So we had no coolers, but we tried to educate everybody say, okay, but don't take that. It's not no coolers. It's yes, coolers aren't allowed, but we do have clear bags that are allowed that you can put your snacks and drinks in. So just transition and and then you tell them the why behind it, the why, why are we doing that? It's because so we don't have to reach our hands into your coolers and bags and different things like that. If we can see it through a clear bag, which a lot of facilities have been moving to clear bags for what, three, four, five years now, but that's the reason why. Okay. Why are we doing digital tickets? Because it's contactless, because we can scan your phone from a distance and also no one's going to touch that other than you. So like, it's your phone, it's your, no one at our facilities can, again. So it was, yes, it's a large operations element. It's a marketing, a PR communications, so from the marketing perspective, yeah, I already kind of said it. There was a large email automation, ramp up, digital videos, website pages, all of those things had to be built out on the back end. So there's kind of an education hub of what to expect. Um, and I think a lot of the modern stadiums can get this and do this very, very quickly because they've been doing it for a while, but it's just making sure you have the right stuff on there. Um, from an actual messaging standpoint, specific strategies and tactics, how many emails were you guys sending? Mm-hmm. Um from a, from a PR standpoint, I mean, what, what did that tour look like working with the media to get the message out? Can you go into some specific strategies and tactics there? Sure. So, um, and we're, we're really blessed to work with Fan360 out of Kansas City, um, who is kind of our back-end technology partner when it comes to email, app, um, a lot of that technology. So we built out, I want to say it was five or six um, sequential emails. The first one started with a thanks for your purchase and here are some resources and here's a notification to say, get ready for digital tickets. And we will, you're, the next email you're going to get is a notification that your tickets are ready. And once those are ready, you need to download them. Okay. Go to number two. Number The second one was your tickets are ready. Here's how to download them. Here's all the resources, which is a click back to the webpage with all the mobile ticketing information. And very specific step-by-step with icons on the email, the whole thing. Very friendly type communication to understand. Here's step one, step two, step three of how you get your tickets. Then it became gate entry times for safety, COVID protocols. So like, here's what you need to know before you go sort of stuff. You know, what you can bring in, what you can't bring in. Are are, are these all separate emails or are you cramming it all into one? No, it's all separate. So it's all sequential. It's all, okay, you get this one, then you get this one, then you get this one, then you get this one. So a ramp up to the event. Um, There was some app stuff because our email and app systems are connected. So there'd be an app push that would go out between two emails to say, hey, have you downloaded your tickets yet? Um, And then I I do want to say at the end of this sequence was kind of a red alert. You haven't downloaded your digital tickets. You haven't opened some of these emails here's a master email with everything you need to know because you haven't opened. So you need to have that strategy in place too for the people because we all know not everybody opens every app push and every email that goes out. So you need to have kind of your backup of 
we're going to keep hitting people over and over again with these really critical pieces of information. So that's kind of the marketing side, marketing fan information side. Then came the PR perspective again, multiple press releases, I would say probably two or three related to safety, multiple community meetings behind the scenes um, with all the community members to for them to be educated. But then when it came to the media, there was a race, what we would, I guess, it's a, we always say race week. It was only a race day, but there was a race day tour, which I think took place on the Tuesday before the Wednesday of race day, where Becky and the team invited a lot of local and national media, if they were in town, to come out for exactly what you said, a tour. It started at the media center with kind of a pre-press conference by Jerry Caldwell. Then it was a walking tour of the stadium. Here's this, here's this, here's this. This is how we stair-step you into the facility. Here's how we're going to keep it clean. This is what the restrooms look like. This is what concessions is going to operate like. This is what the seats are going to look like. You know, This is where you need to wear your mask and where you could potentially take it off in your seats if you're socially distanced correctly, et cetera. So um, yeah, it was very elaborate. But I would think for any modern marketing communications ticketing department, this isn't it's just an adjustment. It's not necessarily more work. It's just adjusting and focusing your work on the new age we live in. I, well, I think that the PR tour thing, having people come ahead of time is brilliant. Uh, and, and, and look, that is going to be the big challenge here is getting fans to feel comfortable that you have prepared right. So we, we, we just did a, we actually launched our second survey with this client's fan base um, yesterday. Uh, but we did a, a big survey for them, I would say maybe a month and a half ago. And mm-hmm. part of it was to capture the fans comfortableness coming to one of the games at the venue. And sure. so they had, we had them rank, you know, uh, what, what would make you feel more comfortable rank these from there's a vaccine available to testings readily available to all my buddies are going. And if they're going, I'm going to go the thing outside of a vaccine, the, the thing that came in second was how I have confidence that there is clear communicated uh, safety precautions from the venue. I trust the venue. And so that's where like that piece, this, this piece is just so critical. Your, your ops team's working their ass off to make sure the venue's ready. You got, you can't overlook the communicating out to the fans of no. what you're doing. I think that we've learned that more and more over the years. And I think that that's a great lesson for any marketer and communi- communicator who's listening to this podcast is you you literally can't go overboard with fan information. Like <laughs> I have learned that because again, it goes back to the age old um, marketing lesson of, you know, it takes the brain eight times to process a communication. So repetition is so critically important. And, and again, I think all modern ticketing, marketing, communications departments are there for that. But I think we all fall into this. And I am guilty of this as well, as you put out one piece of communication and you think, well, I put it out. So it's out there. No, you have to repeat it over and over and over and over again. And again, the media element was so critically important as well, because the media is part of the communications plan, because if it gets in the local papers or it gets you know, Bob Pockers picks it up on Fox or Jeff Gluck picks it up for the athletic and and talks about our safety plan. That's even more fans who've been made aware of what we're doing. 
Um, and so, yeah, the media element was was super critical as well. But repetition, 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 just it, keep repeating your fan information. It's funny, right? We I do a tip of the day every day in a big college newsletter, College AD. And as I'm writing those every day, I think, oh, well, I already wrote a, a tip about that topic, you know, two months ago. So, so I got to come up with new stuff. And it's like, your fans are not seeing every message that you put out. So you got to hit that repetition. Yes. Um, Amen. We covered a lot on the event. I, I, I want to wrap us on that on the event by saying, what would you guys have done differently if you could do it again? And as you guys do as uh, as Speedway Motorsports, you guys do have more events coming up. So, what are some of the adjustments that you guys are making um, at the next event? Yeah, I want to say this is really important because we were sort of a guinea pig for not just NASCAR, not just Speedway Motorsports, but for national live yeah. events in stadiums. Um, okay, so but. We couldn't learn this without going through it. So um, it's, I would say it's, I'm going to give you just a few random things. Yeah. Um, the consistent reminders about masks. A lot of people don't want to wear masks, but it's, it's important. And you have to make it about that. It's about your neighbor and, you know, you got to keep those messages up. Um, signage outside the venue, the walking, you have to understand that people approach venues from long distances away and they approach, give them whether it's a you know shuttles really aren't trams really aren't operating right now but people are going to be walking they're willing to read they're willing to take in that information so guide them kind of like disney and i know you used to work on that as well is that i mean just think theme park think a theme park how they lay out fan information i'll give you one thing that happened the night of that we had to go through to learn but when chase elliott who's the most popular driver in nascar won the nascar all-star race the people on the front stretch flooded the fence like they went directly down to the fence line because that's a very normal, instinctual thing to do for NASCAR fans, especially at Bristol, because you can get really, really close. Um, but that's most. If you look at the broadcast, you'll see that fans do that all the time. So we're going to have to lay out kind of a, an updated plan on making sure people are safe and socially distanced, even in a celebratory manner. So like you, we probably won't have the ability to get to the fence and we'll probably have ushers and other people in place to help people stay distanced. Um, so that was one thing. You're probably not going to see that at a football game, but you are, but at a football game, pregame, halftime and others, you see people kind of get right up against the fence, especially with student sections. Um, you know, they're going to have to put provisions in place to make sure that people stay distanced. Um, just, as we get through this and hope Lord willing, 2021 is a different story and we move on and we get a vaccine and we can turn the corner on this whole thing. But yeah, we had, we learned a few lessons from being in it. That, that one's interesting too, though. Right. I mean, again, if, even if you don't have a, a NASCAR track, it's, I think for me, as I'm thinking about it, it's like, take a look back at how your fans celebrate when they're at heightened emotions, what are their actions? And it's, right. that's different for every fan base. Right. But then how do you do that? Because when your emotions are heightened, you're ignoring rules. You're not thinking about those things. You're not trying to maliciously ignore rules. You're just, the emotions are getting the best of you. Um, what else? Are there any other things that you guys look at and you said, we would have done that differently if we were running it, running it again? Just more, more fan information. Yeah. More like, even though we felt like we went overkill, it, it you can't. So we would just continue to do that. And I think, you know, I'm sure we learned some things from a concession standpoint, and some other things because I think we scaled back some of our concessions operations, just knowing the amount of people that are going to be there, but the demand for food and for drink 
um, was still very high. So we learned a lot from that end. Um, the common areas, different things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's, what's that? I said, I have, I just have so many questions on all this stuff. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, concession stand wise, did you, how many did you guys open? What percentage did you keep open? That's a great question. I wasn't intimately involved in the concessions plan. Um, but I want to say probably 50%, um, knowing that the capacity was at about 30%. Um, but I, I, I don't, I am saying that that is yeah, not, stating, I don't, I want to be on the record saying that is not factual. I'm, I'm speculating that that's how much it was, but you, you I will, some open, I'll try you to get some those books. numbers. <laughs> yeah. No, no worries. Um, it, it, it is interesting, right? Every, every Thursday today we have one, uh, we've been doing these like closed fireside chats. Uh, it's kind of like an invite only thing for operators and, um, we had E15 Levy's data group come in one week mm-hmm. and they were just talking about all the analytics of how do you decide which concession stand to keep open, which do you keep closed, which items do you sell, which do you not sell now at a limited capacity. You can go so deep on any one of these topics. Um, it's really fascinating. It is. Um, well, let's uh, let's start to wrap us up here. I mean, we're going to have to do a round two because there's like 10 million other things that, that we could talk about. Well, um, if your audience demands it, David, I will return to the podcast. I don't know. I, I think maybe my mom and my dad will email you and say that I need to come. <laughs> and, and my mom and dad will, will say it was a good one. Too, so <laughs> all good. Uh, well, let, let's before we wrap, uh, I yeah. want to talk a little bit about uh, your own podcast that you've got, Marketing That Works. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what you've been doing there. Uh, you've got some great stuff on there everywhere from interviews like with my boy, Jesse Cole, yeah. we've had on the show, uh, to tips and tricks on on common popular platforms like YouTube or Instagram. Yep. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about that for anybody that's listening. Yes. Thank you for the shameless plug. Um, no, I've been doing a podcast for three or four years now. Yeah, it's called Marketing That Works. Uh, look, it came from... Just that I'm a marketing nerd. I love my craft. I study. Okay. So you can tell that people really like their jobs when you see what they read on vacation. Like I am always caught with a business book or some sort of marketing book by my side. And because I just, I love my craft. So Marketing That Works, um, which I try to release every single Thursday, is really just a podcast, like you said, tips, tools, tricks those sorts of things. The occasional interview, like you said, with Jesse Cole from the Savannah Bananas, who's I'm sure we all idolize at this point, um, who's who's an amazing guy. But um, it's really it's really just a podcast about marketing. And it's for it's for marketers. It's for people who are in the trenches and who maybe just are looking for a new tool or new trick. And I try to share kind of what I'm learning um, on the job. So that's 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 a podcast and you can get it anywhere. I, I think it's great for anybody listening to this show because it's not it's not your standard, um, I guess, marketing podcast, right? It's coming from Drew, who is a, a VP of marketing at a big sports and entertainment organization. So a lot of the lessons and things that are coming from it, right? He's using them in his own role. So there's going to be a lot of applicable things there for you guys to listen to. Thanks for that, David. Appreciate um, it. Well, I, 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 now I'm going to kind of go down another tangent here. Yep. And this is this is where I think we could do a whole another episode, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about Jesse, uh, I, I think not not a whole episode talking about Jesse, but he's a guy that I think is similar to you and I, where he draws a lot of inspiration from outside of sports 
to pull it into how they to how they operate. So outside of someone like Jesse, I mean, where are your biggest inspirations outside of the sports industry that you're pulling those insights and applying them to the world of sports and entertainment? Gosh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I want to say that, yes, there are, there are people within the sports and entertainment industry that I'm following people like Jesse, because Jesse's doing it differently, but yes, I mean, I would say that it's everywhere from the theme park experiences in Disney, to um, all the way down to your digital marketers. Like I'm a huge fan and huge follower of people like Russell Brunson or Dan Henry. These are guys who are kind of like <clears throat> your, online, your online millionaire type guys, but within what they do, their books and um, their teachings, their podcasts, there are really good tips for just us marketers that are out there. And yes, I I'm not only listening to the people around me because I don't want to ever be this subjective leader. Like everything is just based on what I think. And like, I'm constantly trying to learn and see what our audience needs and wants, but I'm also trying to learn from outside sources. I was listening to a podcast with Gary Vaynerchuk, who was talking to the, I want to say he's like the CMO of Unilever yesterday. And he said the same exact thing about curiosity, about learning from, from other industries, you know, what like Jay Abraham and all these like marketing legends, um, I'm constantly getting their books and trying to read and trying to see through and see where the new tactics or old tactics are. I mean, some of the stuff talking about repetition and the brain hearing something eight times, I'm sure that came from some David Ogilvy book or something like that. Like I just, yeah. I love my craft. I love marketing and I'm looking for different sources all over the business spectrum to try to see what's the best way to communicate and serve my audience. And so um, yeah. And, and again, you'll hear a lot of those on my podcast or, you know, that that's where I'm usually like what book I'm reading that week. I'm like, Ooh, something hit me. Some light bulb went off. I said, Ooh, I've got to try that. Or I've got to try some sequence of communications, or I've got to try some new funnel, or I've got to, you know, just something that's out there. So yeah, I'm infinitely curious about marketing and about business. And I would encourage everybody out there that if you're going to be in it, be in it and be curious about what everybody else is doing outside of just your specific industry. Yeah. Love it. Uh, I, I, two things on that. I mean, one, I think for me, one area that like the last 18 months has been really interesting on, on specifically from a marketing standpoint, uh, has just been the whole direct to consumer space, right? If you look at some of the up and coming brands that are really killing it, um, like I look at like magic spoon, it's like a protein based cereal. Sure. If you, if oh, you yeah. at, I've heard their ads recently. Yeah. If you, so if you look at their whole exercise and like you go in and dissect and do basically your own case study of what their landing pages look like, how they're driving conversions, exactly. right? Like you can really start to peel out some things. I'm like, you could be real dangerous if you applied this to ticket sales or whatever. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you one just recently that ha- happened to partner with Speedway Motorsports, but Shady Rays. Shady Rays is a sunglasses mm-hmm. company. But I went in there and I ordered and I looked at how, like, so, and it, again, Russell Brunson, who I mentioned before, who's uh, the CEO of ClickFunnels, which is a website and a, and a funnel system. But he always talks about funnel hacking, which is essentially going into someone's business, buying their product, but understanding what their process is and what their flow is. And you can really see from modern digital companies how they've made things better and more efficient because that's the only way for them to get to profitability is to make it where you've got really smart systems on the back, back end. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Don't just buy something. 
analyze while you're buying something. Why do we buy from Amazon so often? It's because it's so easy and they have all the other psychological triggers in there, a markdown price, um, one click ordering, like all these different ratings, things. Yeah. Right. Ratings. It's exactly. So, so right. Um, it, it's so critical for everybody in the business world and especially marketers is to not just don't just buy anything like just, you know, click it and go always analyze inside of the funnel and what's going on in there. What made it so simple? And how did you hear about it in the first place? Because I know with Magic Spoon, if I'm not mistaken, they're like heavy influencer strategy right now. They're trying, they're on podcasts. They're, they're trying to get like smart influencers. I think Tim Ferriss has pushed their stuff. Like that, Those that type specific of- case study, someone, I can't remember where I found it. It was on Twitter, but like someone did a specific case study on like how they worked with Tim Ferriss to yeah. drive revenue. And it was, it was wild. Right. Yeah. But Tim's good. And I mean, his podcast is enormous, but, but the way he frames the ad, but obviously they understood it. But if, even if you, even if you listen to Sirius XM and you listen to the radio ads or like, I'm reading a book right now. No kidding, David, because I just, I'm really curious about it is I'm reading a book about infomercials and how they break down and why they were effective and why they are still effective, but they're, they're in different formats. Now they're on YouTube or they're on Sirius XM. If you really listen, that's an infomercial. If you really, really listen closely, it's a great offer. It's a, but wait, there's more, you know, like all these types of things. You just, for the marketers out there, just listen, listen to the offers that are really, and especially pay attention to the to the companies that are growing. And I don't mean artificially growing through capital investment. I mean, really growing through profitability. Like they have customers that they're growing and they're growing profitably. Like what are they doing? You know, watch what they're doing and analyze it. Again. Uh, and like, so, so what's his name? Uh, Adam White. Do you know Adam from front office sports? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love front office sports. Yeah. They're, they're great. So Adam was on the show, uh, I don't know, maybe end of last year. And we were talking about this same thing. We were like, how is it that a mattress company Mm -hmm. can grow from $0 to a billion in five years? Yet we have sports brands that have been around for a century. People have tattoos of their brand logo and they're not cracking 200 million in revenue. Like how, how is that possible? And so I think there's just a lot that we can all learn by just studying and dedication to the craft like you have. Absolutely. Um, one more question. You mentioned books. I'm going to ask a classic Tim Ferriss question version of it. Book you've gifted the most? Oh, great question. Uh, it's it's Tim's. Would, it's not mine. But. Right. Uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is probably one I've gifted the most. Um, Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson is probably one I've gifted the most because it just really talks about marketing theory and... Um, uh, the four it's, hour it's, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss is probably one because I think it's just it's just a smart book to read. Um, go ahead. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say it's funny with the Russell Brunson uh, and you mentioned that book. I got served an Instagram ad this morning where he was in the airport giving the book to somebody or something like that. So it's yeah, th- there there's a lot of great practices I think within some of those. Four hour work week for me was huge as well. Right, it was like a seminal type of shift for me. Like I read that I've read it probably four times and it's just, and it, and it's, it's an older book at this point, but it's still, there's so many great lessons inside of it. And I love everything that Tim Ferriss does. Um, I think it's phenomenal, but yeah, I would, 
if you're going to pin me down to three, that's probably three I gift the most. Beautiful. Um, well, let's wrap up here. Uh, any words of advice or parting wisdom uh, for the group? And then we'll find out where they can reach you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, uh, I've talked about a lot of it. Just be curious, uh, be kind. <laughs> I think uh, that's probably one thing. Have some empathy and compassion for people in this time. And we will come out of this, but um, I think kindness never uh, gets old. So try to be nice to people, even though I'm not nice all the time, but I try to be because um, having a wife and three kids, I definitely need to be. But no, I would say as as marketers, as business owners and runners, um, work on the craft, be curious, work on the craft all the time. And not only will you benefit from it, but the people around you will benefit as well. Wonderful. Drew, where can people reach you if they want to They've got questions or uh, if they just want to follow along the journey, what's the best thing for them to do? Yeah. I love when people reach out to me and you know, it's funny cause I say it a lot and I'm like, here's my email address. Here's, you know, I'm at Drew Bedard on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to reach out to me there and um, my email address, Drew Bedard at gmail.com. Like if people just want to ask a question or need any advice, what's funny is I put that out all the time and I really don't get that many emails. Cause I think some people are intimidated by senior people or senior marketer, I'm I'm no different than anybody who's 22 and just starting out. And I love to give advice and I love to help people. So if you ever want to reach out to me, do it. I, I'd love I'd love to talk to you. And yeah, I mean, if you want to kind of keep up with me and um, listen to the podcast every week, and that's where I'm kind of spilling my thoughts and and hopefully that's helpful to you. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes for anybody listening. Thank you, um, Drew. Thanks for coming on the show, man. This has been great. You got it, David. Anytime. All right. We'll talk soon. And for everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, We're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.